Hello, I'm Marie Sneijman. Thank you for joining Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others. Today we're talking about affairs, why they happen and how they can be addressed. My guest is Dr. Ingrid Artis, counseling psychologist from Johannesburg. Welcome, Ingrid. Thank you, Mariette. Thanks for the invitation. To our listeners, after our conversation, Ingrid will give us her three best tips for life. And then it will be fun question time. Ingrid, you're a lifelong learner, aren't you? <laughs> I most definitely am. <laughs> and I enjoy learning. That's one of the fun things in life is to carry on learning. You work with adolescents, individual adults and couples. Today we're looking at the challenging side of love relationships. I'd like to know if you often see couples experiencing infidelity. Yes, Mariette, um, sadly one of the main reasons that I do end up seeing couples for couples counselling is because of affairs. Um, it's one of the main reasons couples come in for therapy, um, so it's, it's very common and um, one can say it's almost predictable when a couple comes. I would love to see couples just coming for enrichment, but that is quite rare. Couples tend to come when there's a crisis, and one of the major crises that couples can experience would be the betrayal uh, that accommodates affairs. What leads to infidelity? That is, that's a very complex question. You know, we can't really have a simple answer to that, but I am going to share with you a little bit what, what the Gottmans have proposed with regards to their research that they've done. And so there are typically a number of steps, which is called falling down the relationship cascade um, that leads to potential affairs. And initially, most marriages start with marital bliss. But... The problem is that there are these habits that start to creep into relationships often that can cause a breakdown in relationships. And uh, John and Julie Gottman, maybe I can just give a bit of background there first. Um, they are psychologists based in Seattle in the US and they've been working with couples and doing research with couples for over 40 years. Um, John Gottman is a researcher a research psychologist at the University of Washington and he's done many many interesting types of research with couples and he's written many books books on trust um, marriage um, and you know his information is incredibly valuable so one of the things that they did early on um, one of the research studies they did, it's a longitudinal study that they did over a number of years with about 3,000 couples, is they developed something called the Love Lab, which was just simply a, a, an apartment that they created um, at the university and they let couples come and stay in the apartment for about 24 hours at a time. They'll observe them on multiple levels. They would take, for instance, all their vital signs, heart rates, they'll check cortisol levels, so they did blood tests, they'll strap uh, monitors around them to check their heart rate and breathing rates, etc. So they did a very thorough physiological test with, with the couples and they would do something called 
well, they call it the SPAF system, which stands for Specific Affect Coding System, which means that they would literally analyze people's facial expressions and code their emotions. And so they did this with all these couples and they started to analyze all the data. And the reason why they wanted to do this is to just try and see what makes for your masters and what makes for your disasters of relationships. Why do we have masters? Why do we have disasters in terms of relationships? And they saw patterns emerge. And one of the main patterns that emerged is that your masters turn towards each other and your disasters turn away from each other. So what does that even mean? So turning towards means we turn towards each other's bids for attention or bids for for connection is actually what they would call it. So turning towards a bit for connection means that when we communicate with each other, whether it's verbal or nonverbal, we actually respond. So in other words, if you had to ask me, In Ingrid, come and have a look Look at this beautiful flower. And I respond, hey, yeah, that's beautiful. It's stunning. I'd love to have one of those in my garden. Then that is a quite a good connection. If I just said, uh, it's still a connection, but it's not particularly great, but it's still regarded as a connection. Those are, uh, are seen as turning towards. Now, we can also turn away from each other or against each other. So turning away is more of a passive <clears throat> passive response. So what I mean with that is it could be that we don't answer, we ignore, um, we could look down at our cell phones, or which is unfortunately one of the very common problems that we're currently facing in relationships, right? That, that real connection one to another face to face is dwindling. We see that even in restaurants, we couples sit opposite each other, but, but they're both so engaged with their phones that there's no real interaction there. So, so that's turning away from. It's quite a passive thing, but there's a rejection aspect to that. And the other response is turning against. So turning against is more active and it's a negative active response. Now they went a step further and they started to look at what does this mean? And, and, and what are these strategies that people use to turn away from each other or against each other? And those are called, they, they coined this the four horsemen of the apocalypse based on the, the book of Revelation. And, um, and these little horses come into the relationship, cause disaster, and they, they trot off again. But there's disaster. Now, the four horsemen are criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling. Criticism, you can hear that that's more of an active against type of approach, where we actively criticize our partners. What is criticism? Not good enough. It's feedback that says somehow what you're doing is not good enough. And there's often blame involved. We use language like you, never, or you always. And, and so the receiver of that might start to feel that whatever I do, it's just never good enough. Then our response to criticism is often defensiveness. So defensiveness means that we, we want to protect ourselves from the criticism and we try to defend our integrity or the, our good enoughness in some way or the other. And so that could be a counterattack. 
it could be maybe not taking responsibility so we try and defend ourselves in some way or the other because essentially it's an attempt to change the other person's mind about us right that's what defensiveness really is and that's that could be active it could be passive and then contempt is regarded as one of the primary reasons that people get divorced based on on the research that they've done um, when we express contempt towards another person we're basically saying not just the way that you do things are not good enough but who you are is not good enough so contempt is when we look down at another person we don't value them as a human being we speak ill of them we um, roll our eyes we use contemptuous language all the time about that person so that that would be when we use language like you're stupid you're any anything that we can say that breaks the other person's identity down very destructive and it's typically one of the main reasons why why people will potentially end up with a divorce and then stonewalling is as you can imagine it's that wall that people build be- between each other that that invisible wall and that could be the silent treatment that one can often see in re- relationships that's unhealthy where people ignore each other for a period of time they don't talk it's a form of punishment right but the Gottmans also found that stonewalling is very much connected to physiology in other words what happens inside of our bodies when people stonewall particularly in an argument in a situation where there's a lot of let's say conflict the person who stonewalls can often go into that freeze response if you think of fight and flight and freeze these autonomic nervous system responses the the freeze response kicks in as a defense mechanism and the person literally they don't know how to respond they they are they come across as being very passive and not engaging but literally the, the they have no idea how to respond in that moment their body is frozen and their brain almost one can say is frozen in that moment it's i don't know what to do type of state and that's typically in in the actual situation so so the gottmans they they didn't just look at what these issues are the problems are but they also looked at the antidote so how do we then how, how do we alleviate these responses how do we learn how to respond in a different way to make our marriages a little bit better in terms of our interactions and we can maybe look at those later on but um so so part of the cascade down towards experiences like infidelity is the fact that people start moving into the four horsemen in terms of their relational style so there might be criticism then followed by obviously defensiveness is as a response then contempt starts to creep in where we start looking at the person our our, our beloved through lenses that are negative we start having the stonewalling response to that where we we don't really engage all that much anymore and then our thoughts become very negative so that next step is how we start to think about our partners and about our relationship because it just feels so negative all the time and so our thoughts maintain 
the stress that we experience because we can't get out of it as easily anymore as when we think positively about people, right? So when there's a negative thought about somebody and we actually believe they are bad people, we um, are in a stress state when we're around that person and the maintenance of stress causes a lot of physiological responses that can keep the stress intact like high cortisol levels and adrenaline levels etc etc so the thoughts become negative then what happens is our respect and admiration towards the partner partner also diminishes and people then start to rewrite the history of their relationship in their minds in other words instead of it being what it actually was a relationship with good moments, fond memories, special um, experiences, etc. Those are almost ignored in favor of all the negative experiences. So we highlight that which was not positive in favor of the reality of the whole gamut of experiences. And the reality is no relationship is ever perfect. That's just not realistic. And, and I think when we do have these expectations that relationships should always be 100% perfect, then we're actually setting ourselves up for disaster because it's not realistic. It's, we're human. We are going to make mistakes. And we want to have a grace and a level of mercy towards each other in this whole thing called life. And um, I think part of why we do seek out a partner to share our lives with is not just so that we're not alone but that we can develop ourselves as human beings as that that we can grow together and in in our relationship we can refine each other and become hopefully better human beings that's that's i think one of the positive reasons why we do want to engage in relationships in, in in special relationships one to another, but then also broadly to have families and extended relationships as well. And then what happens is after we've written the history, we, we see our problems as extremely severe. So little mistakes become big events. It's very easy when we are fond of each other to dismiss little mistakes and to say that's okay we can sort it out we'll come up with a solution we make a plan it's not the end of the world because we don't see each other through negative lenses we see each other through lenses of you know this person actually has my best intentions at heart but if we don't believe that in anymore if we believe that our partners actually don't have our best intentions at heart they don't love us as much as we think they should, then uh, the chance of seeing their behavior as malicious or intentional and negative increases and small mistakes become bigger problems in our mind and, and we don't extend as much grace towards a person in that situation. And in the, when we reach that level, talk becomes useless. It becomes very difficult to have discussions because people actually can't hear each other. They don't, they don't listen to each other properly anymore because they can't hear each other correctly anymore. <clears throat> they're hearing what they think they're hearing. 
and that's quite dangerous. And then they start to live these separate lives. They, they might share a house, but in many ways they, they become quite lonely and separated in that relationship. And, and people then could start seeking out bonds and connections with other people that they deem um, to be a better fit from, from, their, from their point of view. Now, now, that is just basically how relationships go, go down a negative spiral and how repair attempts or attempts to try and repair the relationship just doesn't work anymore. Now, with regards to um, affairs, these aspects do play a role. These kinds of failed attempts at creating a healthy relationship, that, that could certainly happen in affairs. It doesn't always happen in, in affairs. And like I said earlier, there's, there's a lot of multiple reasons why people might engage in affairs. And one of the reasons that one can identify is typically trauma. Now that sounds a bit odd, but there are people engaged in affairs simply because they had historical childhood traumas. Um, I'm going to quickly share with you a quick case study that I saw. It's not my own clients, but I, I just saw this case study uh, of a young couple where the woman in the relationship desperately wanted to get married to the young man, but they've been in a relationship for four or five years and he's just not asking her to get married. And so she's getting more and more despondent and despairing. And what's worst is the closer they would get to each other, he would have these one night stands. So every time they move towards each other, he would go out and he will seek a one night stand, which would cause their relationship, of course, to become distant and there, there would be a lot of pain involved in that. Now, I think when one witnesses this kind of case study initially, you know, there could be a lot of judgment towards the young man. And, and I think all of us who were watching it were like, oh man, why could he, how could he do this to this lovely young woman? And as the story unfolded, um, it became clear that he had experienced a lot of abandonment in his life. So one of the experiences of abandonment was, for example, that his father committed suicide in his early tw 20s. And he experienced that as abandonment. But before that, there were other, other abandonment type of experiences. So he had a framework, a mental framework of when I love people, I'm going to be abandoned. So there was a tremendous amount of fear stuck behind his behaviors. Now, is his behavior okay because of that? Of course not. But we want to understand why people get stuck in patterns of behavior that is so destructive to them. He himself could not understand why he was doing what he was doing. But what was happening is the closer he would get to his beloved, the more he fear would rise up in him and he would start feeling terrified that she would abandon him because his belief system, his core belief system that he started to latch onto is when I love people they're going to abandon me. And so the closer that they would get to each other, 
the more he would push her away and actually sabotage the relationship in that way because he his fear would would override his rational mind but also his deepest desire his deepest desire was to have a good loving marriage and to start a family that's what he wanted but he was unable to move through that fear to the other side and so from that point of view if we start keep keeping in mind that trauma plays a role in our behavioral responses to life and if we've got a strategy to start dealing with trauma we can really help people to work through those more successfully so that they can start diffusing the underlying fears and motivations that they're not even aware of it's subconscious fear um, that gets lodged in the, the hindbrain and that is where treatment protocols like for example brain work, working recursive therapy comes in very handy because it's a very helpful tool to deal with trauma so trauma losses so people who lose loved ones suddenly might might have these strange bouts of having affairs and as far as we have come to understand you know people who work with trauma and do research with trauma um, we are embodied beings in other words we can't think about people the way that Descartes has described people in the 1700s or early 1800s he said um, I think therefore I am and so that's a very dis disembodied way of seeing humanity we basically minds and our cognitions are the most important thing the reality is that we live in our bodies and trauma activates the nervous system it activates our memory of experiences for a good reason and that reason is that we can protect ourselves in future so when we go through a traumatic incident our brain activates or remembers that trauma physiologically so we remember it in terms of smell our physical senses what we hear what we see what we taste and the brain records aspects of that as a memory in our subconscious mind or we can call it the hind brain or the reptilian complex the brain stem the medulla oblongata the amygdala those parts of the brain the hippocampus where memory is stored they all play a part in in storing these memories so that we can be protected or we can try to protect ourselves from future similar events now for human beings trauma is not just a typical idea of, of being chased by a lion or um, something like that trauma can be very abstract for us as people because we are social beings so our traumas can be things like rejection and abandonment and failure why failure because it can lead to rejection and abandonment now if we think about it we are or should hopefully be born into a loving family where there are primary caregivers where we looked after we being we be we are fed we are clothed and our needs are our basic needs are met and if a child or a baby is born in an environment where that does not happen and 
they are literally potentially rejected or abandoned. They could literally die. That's a reality. So in other words, in, in us, in each one of us, there is an inherent fear of rejection and abandonment, but it gets mitigated, it gets softened as a result of our um, attachments that we have early on in life. And that's where attachment theory, of course, come in, where uh, if we have healthy attachments, where our caregivers are there, they feed us, they look after us, our nervous system gets regulated properly and we have a healthy relationship to other people and to things and objects. But if we have a poor attachment to, to our environment, particularly our caregivers and our needs not necessarily being met properly or in a healthy way, we develop these insecure attachments, anxiety types of attachments, where, where our nervous system is playing a very strong role in those. There's anxiety underneath there, there's fears underneath that. And that thing can play out later in life as well, where um, we, we engage with, with others based on these early kind of programmings in terms of attachments. And um, if we have poor early attachments and trauma attached to that as well, we don't have a very good foundation or mechanism to self-soothe so that we can help our bodies to, to regulate itself again quickly so that we can move on and move through life in difficult situations. But if we relatively well attached, we already have a healthy basis that we understand how our bodies should feel so that we can help our body move, to move back into that healthier state after difficult life events. Now with this example that I gave with this young man, he didn't have good early attachments and he also had a lot of abandonment experiences. So there was a lot of trauma and as a result of that, he could not regulate himself well. And he couldn't help his nervous system to calm itself down properly. And, and so the, even the experience of in intimacy for him was quite a frightening thing because it felt, well, f firstly quite unknown, it's an unknown experience, and then it activated fear that this feels so great, but what if, what if I get it abandoned, I won't be able to handle it, so I'm rather going to sabotage this thing and, and, and be angry and reject the person before they can reject me so that I can survive, so that I can, you know, cope. So fears happen for multiple reasons, and some of them are very deep, like this, for example. So part of therapy then would be to try and unravel some of the, the deeper core motivations. What are people's core belief systems? What do we believe about relationships? What do we believe about intimacy? What do we believe about other people's behaviors towards us? So, for example, when our partner doesn't answer us immediately, does it mean they actually don't love us? Or does it just mean they're thinking? Or what does it mean? And so we attach all kinds of perceived experience or negative experiences 
to our own kind of core belief system and and those things need to be understood and uh, corrected as much as possible so technically and I'm not going to go into all these steps because there's there are actually 24 steps <laughs> a cascade towards uh, betrayal there are eight broad broader steps but there are 24 um, steps uh, that Gottman and Rosbold Glass has identified that can lead to betrayal but what I basically try to communicate now is that our relational style particularly if we we allow the four horsemen to enter into our relationships could lead to betrayal betrayal because it leads to a disconnection and then also being mindful of traumas historical traumas recent traumas like losses or losing a um, a loved one losing work being retrenched in any kind of um, very traumatic incident can cause people to try and self-soothe in bizarre ways and an affair is similar to any kind of any other type of addiction so, so for some people having affairs or multiple affairs because it becomes addictive is a way to self-soothe and for somebody else it might be drugs or food or whatever it might be so it's very physiological Thank you. I think you've given me a much deeper understanding. So what you will have if a couple comes in with infidelity, then you will have both of them as a complex human being with all these triggers and their backgrounds. And you will also take into account, as you said, the physiological aspect of that. Yes. And, and then you will work with that. So. I was wondering at which stage, stage of this cascade of events couples normally come to you? Well, I must say, unfortunately, most couples come after the fact, after an affair. So they've typically gone through the whole cascade and, and it's only when there's a real crisis where they notice that things are falling apart, or we don't trust each other anymore or it, it, trust has been broken one to another uh, that couples come, come in because it's a crisis event and most people feel that when, when it seems like their relationship is still okay that they have what it takes to, to you know, mend it and to move forward and so we tend to see people when, when there's a crisis and when the couple is in such a, such a state of disorientation and difficulty that, that they need external help. I know that each couple is unique, but could you offer us a bird's, eyes, a bird's eye view of how you help couples under these circumstances? Okay, so I, I, do, I do like to approach this from a bottom-up and a top-down approach. So what I mean with that is we, we want to recognize that there could be trauma involved. So um, using interventions like BWRT, 
that works more with the subconscious hindbrain aspects of memory and learning is very helpful to, to help couples to diffuse the, the traumatic aspect of experiences that they had in their relationship. And then there's the top-down approach, which is more your Gottman methods, um, which is more psychoeducational, is more of a cognitive approach. And both of these work we want to we want to look at the whole person so we want to be able to do a both and approach as opposed to a either or approach so I, I like to do both to try and understand um, the the history and the various traumatic incidents that has happened in that particular relationship it's maybe some of the historical experiences to try and understand where the person's coming from I even like to work a bit from a CBT point of view because I like to understand what people's beliefs are about aspects in their relationship like I've mentioned earlier that we all have certain beliefs about life about others about ourselves in this world and oftentimes there's there's a belief that keeps us stuck so for example we might have a belief, let's use a silly example, that my partner has to be able to read my mind because if, if he or she is not able to do that, it means that they don't care enough about me. Because if they cared enough, they would be able to instinctually know what my needs are. So they don't care enough to try and explore my needs. And if that's the case, they actually don't love me and if they don't love me it means that maybe I'm not good enough and if I'm not good enough I will be rejected and if that's the case I won't be able to manage it so we we go and we try and explore what the person believes is it rational is it not rational and that's very helpful to try and understand what people are thinking and how it's affecting their behavior how it's affecting their emotions and then their interactions with their partners. So uh, I enjoy doing that often when we, when we discover that there is um, a stuckness somewhere. And it, it's very helpful to do that with a couple together because they get to, they get to see each other's uh, responses and they get to understand their own thinking and how it's irrational and there, there's laughter often involved and compassion. So that's a very helpful tool as well. So that will be a top-down approach. That's a, ra- a cognitive approach where we think about how rational our thoughts are or not. But when we have that information, we can then also do a bottom-up with that. And we can say, okay, so if that makes you feel very anxious or stressed or whatever it is, when your partner is not responding to you the way you think they should be responding to you, if you think they sh- if they loved you, they will be able to read your mind in this situation. And if it doesn't happen, how do you feel? You might feel angry, you might have that fight response, or you might feel anxious. Whatever the response is, let's work with that. And then we can do a bottom-up approach. We work with some brain working and we help to teach the person's brain how to respond but differently in that situation. Um, the way I would, would describe BWRT, how I s- 
see it um, is it's, it's a rapid operant conditioning approach. So you rapidly condition the brain to respond differently in what would have been a physiologically arousing situation. And you give the brain new information to respond differently. So um, bottom up, both, um, top down, and with the Gottman technique, one would um, do a lot of psychoeducation, one would do, try and do role playing with couples and then try out different, different techniques, these different interventions what one, that one can use. But um, I prefer to clear the table first, looking at the traumas, we deal, try and deal with the traumas to diffuse that a little bit to make it easier for a couple then to learn because it's very very difficult when when there's still a trauma lingering to learn because uh, we're not we, we're still in a state of stress or anxiety it's almost actually impossible to incorporate new information if we're still stressed because um, there's a disconnection between the frontal frontal lobe which is our higher order brain our rational brain our learning brain and and, and the hindbrain, there's a disconnection that happens when we're stressed. And betrayal is one of the biggest stresses that people can experience. And I suppose it's stressful to both members of the couple. It is. People tend to react, I think, often when they find out that someone they know, there's a, an affair involved, they tend to react as if there's a victim and a perpetrator. Yeah. Do you see it like yeah. that? Yeah. Well, I, I think I think you're correct, and that is why when people are willing to go through a process of, of doing couples therapy, it could be incredibly meaningful experience for both both people and their relationship if they are willing to do it, um, do the work if their relationship matters enough. Because a lot of the brokenness that might be behind the pain that the couple have experienced could be explored and healed, corrected, and um, the relationship can actually be in a better position afterwards than before. And in terms of a victim, perpetrator, now objectively that is certainly what it appears like because in reality somebody was actually betrayed and somebody did a deed that was very hurtful. That's true and that's correct and we want to acknowledge that. We don't want to dismiss that experience but I think we want to look at it even from a bigger bird's eye view and we want to take all the components into consideration here and we want to be able to treat both parties of, as people who are in that moment of seeking assistance are dealing with their own personal crises. The one is dealing with the hurt of betrayal and feeling not loved, not good enough, rejection, all of those horrible experiences and fears. And the other one might be experiencing um, tremendous guilt and shame, stuckness, not knowing how to how to get out of their spiral of behavior styles and, and they are stuck in a pattern and, and they might feel hopeless and helpless and fearful that they might lose the people that they love. So there, there's a lot of dynamics at play. So it's a very highly charged situation 
typically. But but a lot of compassion is needed all around. And and I think as therapists we really need to suspend judgment. We need to be mindful that that we're dealing with human beings that have stories and personal brokenness like we all do and we want to have a lot of compassion in that situation because we're actually treating the relationship it's not one or the other it's both and it's the relationship as well it's the relationship that's the clients essentially that we would like to to help and heal and assist and it can obviously only happen if a couple really desires that, if they want to go down that route. Now you've talked about Gottman techniques and brain working recursive therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. I was wondering, do you, in the course of treatment, do you see both partners of a couple, do you see them on their own too, or do you just see them together? Yes, that's definitely possible. So. What, what can happen with couples therapy is we can identify a need where a particular person might be dealing with a severe loss or a, a real trauma that is, is constantly affecting the relationship or there might be an aspect of that relationship or, or that a struggle that we encounter as we work with a couple. And that could then um, necessitate the need for a little bit of an individual therapy approach as well. And that's possible. And it, it could be very helpful in some instances just to help that individual. But we always want to go back to the couple as well. Do you think that all couples can be helped to successfully rebuild trust? Well, that, that goes to the question of how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> and the answer, of course, is to that is one. <laughs> but the light bulb must want to be changed. And so, so, so that is really the, the crux of therapy. Is it is a, it's a process that people choose to to enter into by, by their own free will choice. And it has to be there, that way. People cannot ever be forced to change. They need to want to change. And it does take work and it takes effort and it takes a willingness, it takes time. So it's not, not an easy process. But if people are willing to humbly look at themselves, humbly look at their relationship, if they have a goal, if they really desire to make make the relationship really positive and good and great. It's possible. Now what makes it tricky with a couple of course is that you might have one person who would like that and another person who would not like that. One person who desires this this wonderful future together and maybe one day sitting on the patio together looking at the sunset while the other is just bailing out and they're really not interested anymore. And in that case, it's, it's very difficult because, of course, we can't force people. But with a couple where there is actually still that connection and both parties have a heart's desire to make it work, regardless of the pain that they've gone through, if they can hold on to some of the memories some, if they can rekindle where they've come from and what their dreams were and where they actually want to head towards and that it's worth it and that you know the grass is not always greener on the other side as they say that if we're willing to work and grow together we can 
create good relationships it's, it's changing ourselves for good then by all means uh, those couples will be successful they will be successful so it's it's the willingness that's important that's the main ingredient both parties being willing earlier in our conversation you spoke about these four horsemen Yes. And you mentioned that there are antidotes. Yes. Would you like to mention some of those? Yes, yes. Okay, so let's quickly go through those because I think that they will be helpful. Okay. So the, the first horseman is criticism. So the antidote to criticism is what uh, John Gottman terms the, the gentle startup. Now, many of us who've, who's maybe encountered some kind of corporate training has learnt about I statements, right? So, so gentle startup is really using I statements rather than you statements. So we just reframe um, a need in, in that way. Let me give you the, the little formula. It will be something like this. I feel, whatever that emotion is, about whatever the situation is, or the thing that we're concerned about, and you add a positive need. And I really need dot, dot, dot. So let us say, and let's use the most ridiculous example that is often used, let's say our partner is constantly throwing their clothes on the, on the floor, and we really desire them to put it in, in the washing basket. Instead of shouting and screaming, which sounds like would be then criticism but it's it's not helpful because when we scream of course the other person just closes their ears even more um, we use a gentle startup now is it always going to work probably not but we can certainly give it a try so it would be something like i really feel overwhelmed disappointed tired when i notice the clothes on the floor it's really tiring for me to, to feel like I have to pick it up on your behalf. I really need you to assist me and to just quickly put your clothes in the basket. Something like that. So it's, it's, that's a gentle startup. Then with regards to defensiveness, defensiveness has to do with self-protection. And what it sounds like to the person who, let's say, criticizes is um, when the other person starts to defend themselves, it sounds to them that they're not being heard. So, so we want to defuse a potential fire from happening by, by throwing water on the fire as early as we possibly can. And so if we handle defensiveness in a different way, we can start doing that. So an antidote to defensiveness is taking responsibility where we can. So, so it would be um, listening to what the person is saying and analyzing whether it is true or not. Is this feedback that I'm getting, whether the person's attitude is good or bad in the process, that put that to one side, listen to the message. Is it true, is it false? If it is true, what can we do with it? We can take responsibility for it, right? It's a fact. I do throw my clothes on the floor. I can take responsibility for it, of course. If I want to become a more loving, engaging partner, that is a simple thing to do. And if it's not true, 
well then we we can look at that objectively and maybe explore with the other person why they perceive it like that and it may be a once-off event or whatever and then we just take responsibility for the once-off event then with regards to contempt we, we know that the phrase is used in the courts of law in contempt of court means being disrespectful of the courts and in our interactions one to another contempt basically means that we look down on we disregard we disrespect each other so what is the antidote respect so a basic let's say value that we can integrate incorporate into ourselves would be respect so in other words in our relationships we can make a decision that even if I feel rather crummy I'm going to make a decision that I'm going to treat my partner with respect the way that I would treat somebody that I honor and we might fail at that many times but when we do fail we want to be able to correct that apologize and and, and correct it and learn from it and do better next time around so that will be an antidote to contempt stonewalling we mentioned is quite physiological so particularly when people go into that freeze response so what is normally recommended here is if we recognize that there is a heightened autonomic nervous system response the sympathetic aspect of the nervous system gets very activated and the person's heart rate goes up, their muscles might become very stiff, but actually ready for action, but they are stuck in their bodies. A good technique would be to self-soothe and, and to take a little bit of time out. So what a couple wants to be able to agree upon is when we're in a situation where we're noticing that there's this hyper arousal that leads to a frozen state, or even a fight or flight response, so anxiety or anger. We need time out to regulate ourselves again, to get that the high cortisol and adrenaline levels back down again. It takes about 30 minutes to get cortisol back to normal levels. And that would involve things like breathing slowly, taking one's mind off the actual subject at hand. Not that easy to do when you're in that situation. But just to agree to take time out, breathe, get the brain integrated again, that the whole brain speaks to each other. And once we've done that, we can then potentially solve the, the issue at hand very successfully because we have the whole brain speaking rather than just the, the hind brain, which is the irrational mind that, that just wants to escape or fight or flee or freeze. And so what one would teach clients is self-soothing mechanisms. And what can be very useful is using these uh, finger pulse oximeters that look at oxygen levels and heart rate levels. What are those? They are these little devices that they've used. Um, now, in, in, at COVID time, they became quite well known. It's a little device that you put on your finger. Um, it's a finger pulse oximeter or oximeter not exactly sure how to pronounce it 
and what it measures is oxygen levels in the blood as well as heart rate now when our oxygen levels starts to drop if we're in a resting state to below 93 it typically indicates that we stressed so ideally it should be around about 98-99 when our heart rate starts to move above about 100 beats uh, per minute uh, we are moving into a stress state particularly if we if, if we're in a resting state of course we're not busy with physical exercise so if we resting and, and we're seeing both heart rate going up and oxygen levels going down that can be monitored with this it's not always obvious when we look at a person they could look very calm particularly if they're in a freeze state right they're just sitting there and it looks as if they just not interested but in reality what's going on behind the scenes in that person's physiology in their body is they're incredibly aroused they're very very stressed there's a lot of cortisol and adrenaline and if one can teach a person how to use almost biofeedback techniques um, they can use this little apparatus and use breathing techniques and, and they can see how they manipulate their oxygen and heart rate levels by breathing slowly through the nose, out through the mouth, thinking about, about something that's more peaceful and uh, intentionally relaxing the, the muscles, etc. They can learn and start to feel how it feels like when their body is in, in, a, in a much calmer state. And they can slowly but surely teach the body how to then move into that state intentionally so we can teach our bodies and that's what your deep sea divers who who do these incredible dives in ice cold water would would do they would regulate the autonomic nervous systems which we regard typically as as something that is not voluntary they would they would teach their bodies how to respond to these cues breathing cues etc so that they can calm their, their systems down and if we can learn how to calm our bodies down we can manage stress much better if we can manage stress better we can be in conflict situations more comfortably and we can potentially even calm the situation down from the outside in so we can calm our partners down because we do become co-regulators of one another so there, there are mirroring systems in the brain where we kind of mirror each other so if we're with a person who's calm and who's got a calmer demeanor it can help us to calm down and it also works the other way around that's fascinating in other words it might happen that a couple comes to you for a problem of betrayal and they end up being able to regulate themselves much better yes. which will serve the whole family yes. not just the not just their relationship. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, and that's the beauty of having had the crisis. We know that the term a cri crisis is an opportunity gets bantered around, but it could be an opportunity for growth. And and sometimes even going through this horrible experience can facilitate incredible, helpful change in a couple to learn how to really be there for each other in this way and to help each other to 
to regulate themselves in these difficult moments. And, you know, if they learn these things together, it's part of the journey. They're in it together. It's like soldiers on the battlefield where they go through the difficulty of being in war together and they build the camaraderie and the, the trust gets developed in this, this difficult experience. But when they come out of it, the relationship is incredibly strong. So there's always hope. Thank you, Ingrid. Where can listeners learn more about your work? We have our practice website, which is www.westpsych.com. So it's the direction west, psych for psychology, P-S-Y-C-H.com. And there's information about myself and my colleagues and some articles. And then we've got a Facebook page page as well which is West Psych. Those those are our main sources of information where people can easily get in contact and, and learn a little bit more and maybe read some of our articles if they're interested. Yes, I'll attach the link to your website to this podcast. And then you're also involved in training programs and you have a BWRT course coming up. Yes, so it will be in November, early in November one of the Saturdays we'll be training healthcare professionals uh, who has completed level one in using BWRT with couples. We'll be covering a lot of the things that we've chatted about. We'll be we're looking at the top down and the bottom up approaches, but I'll also be sharing some ideas of using particular protocol with couples who've experienced the crisis of infidelity. The, the trauma of infidelity, shall we say, and that that protocol is used both with the person who has betrayed and the person who has been on the receiving end of betrayal. Thank you. Now your three best tips for life, please. <laughs> okay, so seeing that we're speaking about couples, as a young married person, I would get very distracted with running between cooking meals and doing admin and I've, I've burnt pots multiple times. So <laughs> my little simple tip on cleaning pots would be to use vinegar. So you, you put vinegar in your pots and you boil it and you'll notice that whatever was burnt in your pot should, should soften up and come off quite easily. I'll so, need that one. <laughs> so that's just a silly tip but um, uh, vinegar by the way is very helpful for so many things. It's, you can use it as a replacement for your clothes softening uh, in your washing machine. Okay, It doesn't have the spring fresh smell but it, it acts as a softener as well. And then another tip just with regards to one of my interests, I, I enjoy creating things I enjoy painting and drawing and creating artwork of various kinds. I just don't have the time for it always. But I, I want to encourage people to explore your creative side. And what I learned doing artwork is, is that everybody can do art. So my tip for you would simply be to be to observe shapes and colors and dimensions. In other words, activate your nervous system, your vision. That's part of mindfulness, just by the way, is to 
to take note of things and and just see what do you see in an object that you would like to perhaps draw and try and see if you can see the circles and the triangles and the, the squares etc and um, and put them together and there you go you've got an artwork so give it a try I'd like I'd really like to encourage people to uh, become creative and explore that that side of fun and playfulness and then my last tip is probably a little bit more philosophical and you know having practiced for quite a number of years I, I think some of the things that one learns over time is just to really value humanity to value each other and to to be able to suspend things like judgments and to replace it with kindness and it might be an interesting exercise for all of us to take a day out and to be intentionally kind to the people that we come across and just to see what happens just see what happens at the the till when you buy your food and you give give the person a big smile and you show kindness and so part of showing kindness is is calling people by name and, and giving people that dignity of calling them by who they who they are, their name. That's acknowledging their identity. So, you know, as, as a family, we enjoy always asking people who serve us in some way or the other what their name would be and, and to call them by name. There's something about that. So that's, that's a just, just a little life tip to enrich us as human beings, but also to spread a little bit of love and care to those around us who sometimes really, really need it. I hope that's helpful. Thank you. May I ask you a fun question? You may. <laughs> now this question requires a flight of the imagination. I'm sure like the rest of us, you sometimes feel the intense desire to get away from it all. So, my question is, if you could be spirited away to any landscape in the world, in any country, under any weather conditions, where would you like to find yourself? Wow. Not too hot, not too cold. That's interesting. I, I must say that I've always been enchanted by forestry scenery, forests. Um, I've got a memory of walking in Mapumalanga through one of the forests with the lights sparkling through the, the trees, the further nice waterfall perhaps, um, maybe some soft grass. Um, so an ideal space for me would be just the silence of a forest, listening to the birds, a soft place to lie down. Um, and just just being able to be for a moment that's my ideal spot sounds lovely Thanks. thank you Ingrid for giving us more information about what can go wrong and what can be done about it in a relationship and thank you especially for the practical tips that you gave you're very welcome Marietta I hope it's helpful for people listening up there and to our listeners, thank you for joining us. If you found this episode helpful, 
please share it with someone you care about. If you'd like a more fulfilling relationship with your beloved, if you wish parenting could be easier, or if you're interested in upping your emotional well-being, you're welcome to visit my website, mariettesneyman.co.za, for free articles and podcast episodes. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me, and the music is by Mart-Marie Sneyman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9.